0: Welcome to episode 2 of Society. I'm Andrea and I'm your host for this lovely episode. I hope you all enjoyed episode 1 and I'm glad you all decided to stick around for episode 2. So since March is Women's History Month, I decided that I would talk about some women in STEM and their research and any contributions to society so, I'm going to jump right in. First up, we have Rosalind Franklin. You have probably learned or heard about Rosalind Franklin in any biology class, but if not, then today is your lucky day because this is probably the one thing everyone is still really salty about. So, Franklin is surrounded by some controversy for not receiving the Nobel Prize for discovering the structure of DNA. Little side note, DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid and very, very simply put, it is the carrier of a living organism's genetic information. There will for sure be a separate episode on DNA and other biomolecules important to our existence. A little background, on Franklin's education and early work. Her PhD was in physical chemistry from Cambridge University in 1945. She then spent three years in Paris where she learned x-ray diffraction techniques. Side note number two, x-ray diffraction is used to find the structure of molecules by essentially shooting x-rays at a sample and then the x-rays will diffract which means sort of scattering and it'll show the structure of whatever crystal is in the sample again this is very simply put and i will probably end up doing a separate episode on this as well but until then back to franklin In 1951, she returned to England to work as a research associate in John Randall's laboratory at King's College, London. Here, she crossed paths with Maurice, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, Wilkins, and they each worked on projects concerning the structure of DNA. It's claimed that Wilkins often thought of Franklin as a technical assistant rather than a scientist on the same level as him. What happens next is not surprising, considering that it was the 1950s, but you know what? It's still very infuriating. So while Franklin was using X-ray diffraction to find the structure of DNA, scientists James Watson and Francis Crick of Cambridge University were also trying to discover the structure of DNA. They had a little chat with Wilkins where he showed them Franklin's photo, famous photo 51, that was used to determine the structure of DNA. Now, once they had essentially stolen photo 51, Watson, Crick, and Wilkins were able to determine that DNA had a double helix structure. This was and still is a very important piece of information because it's this structure and other properties of DNA that allows it to self-replicate. And the self-replication of DNA is important for all living organisms because this is a part of the cell division. Again, there will be a whole episode on this on its own because it's super important and interesting. So back to Franklin and all of this. Um, In April of 1953, Watson, Crick, and Wilkins published a paper in the science journal Nature. Franklin also published in the same issue, providing some extra information on the structure of DNA. But unfortunately, Franklin was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and died in 1958, only four years before Watson, Crick, and Wilkins won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. And that in 1962, for those of you who also hate doing quick basic math in their head like me. And also, another unfortunate fact is that the Nobel Prize isn't awarded to someone who has passed, so Franklin was not honored with Watson, Crick, and Wilkins. And a little fun fact, the Nobel Prize comes with a certificate, obviously, and a medal And a 1.1 million dollar prize. If I was Franklin, I would have been very salty because they essentially just stole her photo. But if this is not enough to infuriate you, there's more. In a PBS documentary, Watson confirmed his previous statements that he believes... That black people are intellectually inferior to whites because of genetics. Now I feel like I don't have to break that statement down because there's a lot of wrong things with that statement. And if, yeah, there's just a lot of wrong with that statement. should clearly incorrect and should just not be said. And he has also been accused of making various other racist and sexist remarks. I'll add an article to the description that provides a timeline of his remarks in the whole controversy surrounding him. Although there is some light at the end of the tunnel, considering the situation, his title at the laboratory that he led has been stripped. So he no longer has a position of power, but I'm not gonna talk about Watson, Crick and Wilkins anymore, but hopefully Rosalind Franklin's legacy and work will live on as long as people learn about her and the important contributions she made without knowing the structure of DNA. A lot of research that's happening now would have not been able to be completed. So, yay for Rosalind Franklin. <laughs> All right, so next up we have astrophysicist and planetary scientist, Dr. Sarah Sieger. And I found her website, which is super nice and very detailed, and I decided to add her to this episode. Her PhD is in astronomy from Harvard University, and her work done during those years was doubted by a lot of her peers, but she has done a great deal of research and made a lot of contributions to the discovery and learning of exoplanets. Exoplanets are planets that are outside of our solar system. So our solar system revolves around the sun and exoplanets revolve or orbit a different giant star, which is their equivalent to our sun. Now in the past 20 plus years, there have been thousands of exoplanets identified. And an interesting part of Seager's research goal is to find another planet like Earth. So far that we know of, Earth is the only planet that can sustain carbon-based life, which is all of us humans and all other living organisms on Earth, including bacteria. There could be an Earth 2.0 out there somewhere, and there are several ways of finding it, or at least to catalog all of the exoplanets and their characteristics. And Seager does this by looking at certain aspects of exoplanets. So first up is exoplanet atmospheres. One of her goals in studying exoplanet atmospheres is to see if there's another planet with an Earth-like atmosphere which would include water vapor, oxygen, ozone, and carbon dioxide. Although finding an exoplanet with a similar atmosphere is some time of Her research group uses computer models of exoplanet atmospheres to interpret the data that is collected from telescopes. And her group also studies the interior of exoplanets. So far, the only characteristics that can be measured are mass and radius. But in the future, after enough exoplanets have been discovered, then statistics can be collected and hopefully molecules can then be detected and compared to Earth. CGR is also currently involved in three space missions to launch, I don't know if that's the correct term, but to launch new telescopes past the Earth's atmosphere to obtain better data from exoplanets and the stars they orbit. And this is very important because astrophysicists and other planetary scientists use data from telescopes to do their research. Now, these telescopes, they're not like the ones that you can buy from Costco and have in your room to stargaze. (laughs) They look more like satellites, and they are tailored to the subject that they are meant to capture in space. So each telescope will have a different shape or different things attached to it that make it more suitable for what it's meant to orbit around and to capture and collect data for. Now, also a part of the search for Earth 2.0, CGR has collected data in order to determine the habitable zone for exoplanets. This habitable zone is based on the temperature and the size of the host star, which is the star that the exoplanets orbit around and also the orbit of the exoplanet, so how far away is it from its host star. Now the distance away from a planet can obviously affect the temperature of its surface because if it's closer to it then it's going to be hotter. If it's really far away it's going to be very cold. Now another effect on the surface temperature of an exoplanet is the amount of greenhouse gases in its atmosphere. Greenhouse gases are gases (laughs) in a planet's atmosphere that absorb and emit energy within the infrared IR region. For example, the greenhouse gases we are interested in measuring on Earth are carbon dioxide, water vapor, methane, nitrous oxide, and ozone, which are some of the factors contributing to climate change. Again, more information on this on a future episode. Now, although the gases in the atmosphere of exoplanets can't be measured, CEDRA has calculated the habitable region for planets that could possibly contain a nitrogen carbon dioxide water atmospheres. I suggest checking out her website, it's super easy to navigate, and she has links to some of her TED Talks about her research if you have an interest in her research and want to learn more. Alright, third woman on our list is neuroscientist and activist, Dr. Beth Ann McLaughlin. So, a little trigger warning. There is a mention of sexual assault and harassment. There is no recounting of an assault or harassment, but I'm still mentioning this just in case anyone listening to this knows this is a trigger for them. Alright, so McLaughlin is a neuroscientist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. And she's also the face of the Me Too STEM movement. This is very similar to the Me Too movement we have been seeing mostly in the entertainment business, but this focuses more on STEM, so people working in academic institutions or even in the industry. It's just a more specific movement to cater to them. What McLaughlin has done is she created a website, MeTooSTEM.com, where people in various STEM fields can leave posts anonymously or not about accounts of the harassment they have experienced. She has also had the infamous site RateMyProfessor.com remove their chili pepper option, which allowed students to rate their professors based on their appearance. And shortly after that, she also started a petition to have the American Association for the Advancement of Science to create and enforce a policy that strips members of honors if they are guilty of committing sexual assaults. Now, despite making progress against sexual harassment and trying to make the lab and other places a safer place for victims, Her job is on the line. According to an article posted on Science Online, the committee in charge of her tenure process has decided to reverse their decision following allegations from another professor who McLaughlin testified against in a sexual harassment case. I will include a link to the article in the description of this episode so you can all read more. I think it's amazing that she has decided to be the face of this movement and is making it her priority because this will not only change the workplace, but also society. She is calling out institutions and people out for not doing anything when people report incidents of sexual assault and making sure that they are facing the consequences of their actions. One of my favorite tweets that I read on her profile stated, you cannot actively contribute to the furthering science in America if you have impeded the progress of women by harassing, assaulting, or retaliating against them. So she's out here taking names, and I love it because institutions are infamous for turning a blind eye when people in positions of power get accused of sexual harassment. Now, survivors are also reaching out to her for help about their experiences and she helps them with whatever they need to work through. I admire her resistance and mission and I hope she inspires others to come forward and sparks change not only in institutions in America, but across the globe. With that being said, Please be an ally. I know this sounds super cheesy, but in all seriousness, if you see something, say something. Call people out for their hurtful and traumatizing actions. Or if you don't want to call them out, then at least report something to HR. Don't, just don't be complacent and don't let people be harassed. Fourth and last woman of the episode, Doctora Eva Ramon Gallegos. Her Ph.D. is in Ciencias Químico-Biológicas, Biological Chemistry, for those of you who don't speak Spanish, and she received it from the Escuela Nacional de Ciencias Biológicas at the Instituto Politécnico Nacional de México, where she is now a professor and researcher. She has recently been in the news for leading a group of researchers in finding a treatment for the human papillomavirus, commonly referred to as HPV. HPV is a sexually transmitted disease, abbreviated as STI, that causes warts, in various parts of the body and can cause cervical cancer depending on the strain of the virus. Now the virus can also cause a chronic illness. So once you are infected, you can be affected for years or even your whole life. And there is right now no cure for the virus but the warts can be treated. And considering all this information HPV is one of the most common STIs, and it can be easily prevented by getting the vaccine, which is recommended that all genders get this vaccine, not just females. And you can also be protected or it by using protection during any and all sexual contact. In 2017, Gallegos was a part of a group of scientists who published a paper in the journal Photochemistry and photobiology on the effectiveness of photodynamic therapy as a treatment for certain strains of HPV associated with cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, abbreviated as CIN, because that's a mouthful. And they did this study in Surrounded and Focusing on Mexican Women. I have attached a link to the free version of the paper in the description of the episode, just in case you want to read more about it after I go through this explanation. But in the paper, they detail how they used photodynamic therapy to treat the group of women affected by the strains of HPV. Now, photodynamic therapy, which is what I also look at in the research lab that I help in, it's an Extremely interesting because of how selective it can be to treat malignant diseases such as cancer and now HPV. So, the way photodynamic therapy works is by introducing a light sensitive compound that is taken up by the malignant, so cancerous or infected cells, and then a light of a specific wavelength is shown on the cells, which cause the cells with. The light-sensitive compound to form radicals that will lead to cell death. Now that's a lot to take in so I'm going to break it down more. So step one, the photoactivated molecule is usually taken up by the cancerous or mal- malignant cells more than the healthy cells because of their rapid growth. The molecule synthesized is usually An analog of a biomolecule or it's a molecule that has properties that allow it to cross the cell membrane step 2 lights at a specific wavelength tailored to activate the chosen molecule will be shined on the area where the malignant cells are this leads to step 3 which is causing the molecule to break down and form free radicals inside the malignant cells. These free radicals are specifically known as reactive oxygen species, ROS, and they can attack other biomolecules in the cells, such as DNA, RNA, and proteins, which lead to cell death. Essentially, the light excites, the electrons in the photoactivated molecule which causes the reactive oxygen species to form. I recommend looking up some extra reading or videos on photochemistry and radicals if this explanation doesn't satisfy you or you just want to learn more. But that's the basics of photodynamic therapy. The great thing about this therapy is that because the cancerous and malignant cells take up the photoactivated compound more than the healthy cells, they are able to get damaged instead of the healthy ones, which does not happen in most treatments. Usually, treatments kill a lot of healthy cells as well, which leads to a lot of side effects. Thankfully, the more selective a treatment is, the fewer side effects there are. The results of the 2017 paper mentioned look very promising. One of the results stated was that 80% of HPV patients who didn't have CIN were clear of infection after treatment. The more recent news about Gallegos' group is that they have reached 100% of women cured, but I don't think those results have been published in a peer-reviewed journal yet. The most recent results I could find were in the 2017 article linked in the description. So, to sum up this segment photodynamic therapy is great because of selectivity, which leads to fewer side effects. Also, there could be a cure for certain strains of HPV on the horizon. Congrats on making it to the end of episode two of Society. I know this one was a lot longer than episode one, but thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on, and make sure to follow the show's Twitter and Instagram account, at SocietyThePod, for updates and cool science memes. Now, next month's episode will be on the periodic table since... 2019 is the international year of the periodic table. So have a safe and healthy rest of the month. And I hope you all tune in next time.